My name is Craig. Uh, I have the title of lead pastor here at the Bridge Church. And one of the things that means is that most often I'm the guy up here teaching from a passage of scripture. And I've actually been doing this for quite a few years, even though it looks like I'm 19 years old. I've been doing it for a while, and so I I don't really get nervous about this anymore, although I know I desperately need God's power at work through me whenever I do this. But one thing I still struggle with through all of these years is knowing, knowing that something is actually happening when I'm speaking. Because Canadians are a very unexpressive lot of people, aren't they? You know, our resting face is one of polite indifference. I read, I read a joke, and uh, it's kind of related to this. Uh, the joke goes like this. God made, when God made Canadians, he made them very, very nice and polite. And an angel saw this and said, I don't know, this is going to make for a very unbalanced, uneven society. I think you should do something about this. And God said, you're right. And so he made Canadian geese. <laughs> This is what we are. We're <laughs> you thought I was going to say Americans, didn't you? You thought that's where that was going. No, Canadian geese. We're going to be kind to our neighbors to the south. Since I'm, ha- I'm, I'm born American. Anyways, we're going to leave that behind. Um, so that, that's kind of what we Canadians are. And, and so, you know, when I'm preaching, I never know if things are landing, you know, if, how people are taking it. If somebody leaves mid-sermon, do they have to go to the bathroom? Or are they quietly furious about something I've said? I have no idea. And so it's a challenge in preaching in our cultural setting is in trusting that the Lord is doing something, whether I see it, whether I know it or not. And I'll sometimes hear, you know, later that day or, or uh, weeks later, even months later, hey, pastor, you know that thing you said six months ago? And saying, I have no idea what I said last week. But they'll say, no, it really impacted me. It made a difference. It stuck with me. You, just, you never know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So that landed. All right, so that's good. I know that now. You never know what God is up to in the moment. And I think that that is an illustration, a small illustration of a very big thing that is happening on the week of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And to get into that this morning, I want to take us into Luke chapter 24. So in Luke 24, we've had Luke tell us in detail all the events that have led up to the crucifixion of Jesus on that, on that Friday. And in Luke 24, on the Sunday morning, a couple days later, some of the woman followers of Jesus go to the tomb of Jesus and they're surprised to find that the stone has been rolled away and that some angels announce to them that Jesus is risen. But nobody's seen him yet at this point. And so this is where Luke takes us next. Luke 24, verse 13. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up there. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Let's uh, just set the context again. So you've got these two disciples walking. They're not, they're not part of the, the 12. They're not part of that core group, but they've been following Jesus for a while. And they're on the road to a town called Emmaus, like it says here, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And uh, the two disciples, one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know the other name, although John 19 talks about a disciple named Clopas and his wife Mary. So some people think this is a married couple, Cleopas and Mary. We don't know for sure. But anyways, they're walking along. And suddenly Jesus comes alongside of them and they don't recognize him for reasons we'll talk about later on in the sermon. So they don't recognize him and he, he kind of, uh, Jesus leads them to believe that he doesn't know what's been taking place in Jerusalem. And so they tell him, they, 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 their faces are, are downcast and, 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 and that word, it evokes somebody who hasn't eaten in, in days, somebody who just looks miserable, drained of life and energy. They are they're devastated by what's happened. They, they tell this, this stranger that they, they are followers of a man named Jesus. Coincidentally, that's the guy they're talking to. They don't know that yet. They're followers of a man named Jesus who was powerful in his teaching and in his deeds and, and that they had hoped that this Jesus would redeem Israel, but instead he had been handed over to death. And it wasn't just that he died. It was how he died. You see, because they believed that he would redeem Israel, but he was handed over to death by Israel's leaders. They believed that he was going to deliver them from their pagan enemies, but instead he was put to death by their pagan enemies. And so their hopes have been devastated. They've been dashed. Can you, can you put yourself in their shoes? Imagine being a follower of Jesus in the first century. Imagine seeing Jesus do the kinds of things the Gospels say that he did. Imagine watching him open up blind eyes and heal paralyzed people. And, and imagine watching him calm the storms with a single word. Imagine him feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Imagine seeing him raising people from the dead. Imagine how you would put all your trust, every ounce of faith in this man. You would orient your entire life around him. You would give up everything to follow him. You would love him more than you've loved anything or anyone ever in your life. Imagine being in that place. And then imagine watching him die on that cross. Imagine all of those hopes. You had built your entire life on this and watch it die on that cross. Imagine what it would be like in those, in those hours and days afterwards. See, it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes because we know how the story ends. We, we know that it doesn't stay in darkness. We know, we know that there's something else, but they didn't know that. You know, our, our family, we were reading through a, a book series that's actually upstairs in the church library. And uh, where, you know, things are, you know, as often happens in a story, things come to a place where it's pretty bleak and pretty hopeless. And uh, there's a, re a report that one of the main characters has died. I'm not going to, I'm not even telling you the name of the book series. So I don't think it counts as a spoiler. Uh, but, and we don't know if for sure this character has died or not. But at this point, when this news comes, our six-year-old Zachary could not take it anymore. 
he just bursts into tears and he exclaims in a loud voice, this is the worst book ever. <laughs> and he just runs, he runs out of the living room. So we can't read this book series anymore. That's, it's just, it, was, it was just too much. We're all gonna have to read it individually on our own and kind of track with each other because just, we just can't do it as a family. Zachary, you know, I, I think is a good representation in some ways of the disciples after Good Friday. They don't know that. I, I have trust and that this book is written by a Christian. It's written for kids and preteens. I'm pretty sure it's gonna get better. Fairly certain. But Zachary doesn't know that. And the disciples didn't know that. There is just despair and hopelessness and, and darkness. And add on to all of that this, that in those hours and days afterwards, it must have seemed to them like God had gone silent, that God was absent, that God wasn't doing anything. Look at that injustice. Look at that brutal, shameful death that a truly good and righteous man, in fact, maybe even the Messiah, the Son of God, look at the death he had died, and God hadn't done anything about it. He had let it happen. So I imagine that for those disciples, the question would have been, where is God? Have you been there? Have you asked that question? Have you asked that question? God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you are. I can't feel your presence. I can't see any evidence that you're present here. If you have, you're not alone. Not just the, the disciples post-Good Friday, but, but the saints throughout the ages have experienced what has been called the dark night of the soul. Habakkuk, uh, an Old Testament prophet, begins his prophetic record by saying, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Or you've got the famous sufferer Job, who God allows to have everything stripped away from him. And Job wants to bring his case before God, but God just doesn't seem to be in the picture. He says, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. See, if you find yourself in that place where you're asking God, where are you? Why are you quiet? Why aren't you answering? You're not less spiritual for asking that question and for having that experience. That is the reality, that at times God seems absent and quiet. And it's heart-wrenching when that happens. That's why these disciples are downcast. That's why they're, they're so discouraged at this moment. Everything is, everything's been stripped away. Everything is gone. Everything is dark. But, but a, a, a ray of light has begun to come through the cracks here on this Sunday morning. Let's pick it up again in verse 22. They go on, the disciples telling this, this traveler, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are 
and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Would that not have been the most incredible Bible study ever? I mean, it starts out with Jesus saying some less than flattering things about them. Can you imagine if I got up here on a Sunday morning and I just started out by saying, look, you guys are idiots. You guys are idiots. You're probably not going to get any of this, but let's give it a try anyways. <laughs> I mean, Jesus doesn't say exactly that, but, but what he says, I would think that Cleopas would be taken aback a little bit. Well, how dare you? But that would have gone away pretty quickly. When, when this traveler begins to open up the scriptures and starts to connect pieces that you've never, never noticed before and make sense of the world that you're living in in a way that you haven't seen before and shows how all the scriptures have been pointing to and, and have found their fulfillment in Jesus. I mean, I, I wish that Luke had given us like a word-for-word -word transcript of what happened there because it would have been incredible. Now, at the very center of, uh, of this part of the text, and of course, this whole chapter, is the resurrection of Jesus. And Cleopas and the other disciple, they're just starting, starting to glimpse it. You know, they've had this report from the woman that the tomb is empty, and then from some of the other, other disciples that the tomb is empty. They don't really know what to make of that. And then you've got this impromptu Bible study that is showing how all of the things that have taken place were in fulfillment of the scriptures. There's some hope starting to break in. And of course, the greatest piece of evidence for Jesus being raised from the dead is the fact that he's right there in front of them. He's there, he's walking with them. Do you get the sense of impatience when you read this story? Like, Cleopas, open your eyes, he's right there. It's like watching Superman and being dismayed that Lois Lane, a professional paid journalist, paid to notice things, doesn't realize that Superman, who she's in a romantic relationship with, is the same guy as Clark Kent, who she works with, and the only difference is a pair of glasses. <laughs> You're like, open your eyes, woman. Look at the evidence. But you know what? How many of us live in ignorance of something that has an abundance of evidence going for it, like the resurrection of Jesus? How many people in our culture simply don't see, don't recognize that Jesus is risen despite all the evidence for that? And that might surprise you because you might think that Christian faith is something where you just kind of check your brains at the door and you kind of join this mass delusion. You might be surprised to find out that as Christians, we believe that what we believe is rooted in real, solid, rugged history. We believe that this stuff actually happened, that Jesus said the things that the Gospels say he said, that he did the things the Gospels say that he did. We believe that Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead, and we believe this is a historical event that has as much evidence for it as anything else that happened in the ancient world. And so I'm going to go through that a little bit. I do this every Easter, but I think it's important. I think it's important for of course, for people who are interested in the truth claims of Christian faith, 
who are, are kind of just checking this out, I think it's also important for, for Christians to be assured of, of the confidence we can have in all of this. So let's look at the evidence for the, the resurrection of Jesus. Let's start by going to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, and he reminds them what he's passed on to them. Of first importance, he says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. One of the things Paul is doing in that text is that he is naming eyewitnesses. He is saying to his readers, you can talk to these people. Here are some people who are still living, because Paul writes that letter about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, look, there are still people who are living who saw Jesus raised from the dead. You can go to them, you can ask them yourself. This is the same thing Luke is doing in Luke 24 by naming Cleopas. He's saying to his readers, look, if you know who Cleopas is, you can go and talk to him. He saw the risen Jesus. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the reality of named resurrection eyewitnesses in the first century? How do you make sense of that? One possibility that people put forward is that maybe there was some kind of mass hallucination event. You know, people saw some kind of phenomenon and they interpreted that as, as the resurrection of Jesus. One of the issues there is that it's not just one event, but rather numerous people at different times and at different places are all seeing the same thing, not necessarily even connected to each other. And besides that, there's also the fact that there really was no expectation in first century Judaism that one person would be raised to life like this in the middle of history. Historians and scholars like N.T. Wright have tracked this through, that there was, if, if there was a, a hope for resurrection, it was at the end of history when everyone, all of God's people would be raised. There was no expectation, no hope that one person would be raised in the middle of history. N.T. Wright also shows how there were all of these other movements in the first century Jewish world, messianic movements, where there was some would-be Messiah that people were trusting in, and then inevitably they were killed, they were put down, these, uh, these movements, but never in any other instance did anyone start to say, hey, actually our Messiah has risen from the dead. There was no precedent for this. So, so wishful thinking seems to be out as well. It's not that people were just imagining something because they wanted it to be true. There was no precedent for this. And, and not only that, but, but some people would say, well, maybe, they're just, maybe they were just lying. Maybe they were concocting a story. The big question with that, besides all those other problems that we just mentioned, the big question there is what would people get out of it? What would they have gotten out of lying about Jesus being raised from the dead? I'll tell you what they did get out of it. They got death. That's what they did get out of it. Almost all of the apostles were killed because of their claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. You would think after like eight or nine had gone, the 10th would be like, I don't know if it's worth it. 
You know, I think maybe if we all know this was a lie, we all know that we made this up, maybe it's time to recant and save my life. But it doesn't happen. There's no record of some celebrity apostle anti-witness to the resurrection. And um, besides all of that, you've, you, you've just got this, you, you've got a guy like Paul. You've got a guy like a Paul who, who actually in the first place was on the right side of this culturally and politically. He had all the authority of the empire and the Jewish establishment. He was going around persecuting Christians. And all of a sudden, one day he does a total 180. And now he starts telling everybody that actually I was wrong. Jesus has actually risen from the dead. And he subjects himself to imprisonment and torture and ultimately death for this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. How do you explain that? How do you explain the explosion of Christian faith in the first century when these disciples, after Jesus is crucified, they're, they're hiding out behind locked doors because they know they're next. And all of a sudden, a month and a half later, they're going around telling everybody that Jesus has been raised on the pain of death. They, I just don't see how you come to a more reasonable conclusion than the fact that they were telling the truth. Then you've got the empty tomb. What do you do with the empty tomb? Because the, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead doesn't emerge decades later, thousand miles away, where somebody like Peter could have said, well, guys, you just got to trust me. You're never going to go back to Jerusalem and see it yourself. But the tomb's empty. I saw it. This happens in Jerusalem immediately after the events where everybody, everybody could just go and say, you guys are, you guys are out of your minds. There's the tomb, there's the body. What are you talking about? But instead, this news erupts in Jerusalem that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And I mean, the Bible actually reports some theories, some, some, some things that people started to spread around. Oh, the, the tomb is empty because the disciples stole the body of Jesus and they stashed it somewhere else. Now, there are other problems with that, like the ones that we've mentioned. But the point is, the tomb was empty. The body wasn't there. And then there's also this, that, uh, that women are named as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, thankfully, this isn't the case in the 21st century anymore, but in the first century, women pretty much universally were deemed to be unreliable witnesses. And so if you were concocting a story, if you were making something up, you never would have named women as the first witnesses. And yet that's what we find in the Gospels. Even in Luke 24, it's women who hear the news first. And so it's like the apostles who, who write these things down, who record these things are just going, look, this is how it happened. We would have maybe done it differently, but this is what Jesus did. This is who he revealed himself to. And you might think, well, that's a, that's a clever way of making it seem authentic. But in the first century, it wouldn't have done that. It would have just undermined the credibility of the story. See, Jesus rose from the dead. Physically, bodily, literally, not as a symbol, not as an idea, not as a myth, not as a story made up to soothe the hearts of those who had lost a loved one, but a rugged, solid, historical event that has as much evidence for it as anything else in the ancient world. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you're kind of new to this, or maybe you've heard this many times, you might be wondering, well, if Jesus really physically rose from the dead, then where is he now? I mean, did he die again? 
Is he still walking around somewhere? There's a couple of parts to the answer to that question. One is that 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the gospels tell us that he, that he ascended to God the Father, that somehow he is behind the veil of our visible reality. Uh, and, and that behind the veil, he still sometimes does come through the veil. That's what happens to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, he witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Um, I think there are, there, are, there are stories throughout history where, where Jesus has kind of made an appearance. I, I, I tend to believe some of those stories. And Jesus is behind the veil. The resurrected Jesus is behind the veil, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't still sometimes show up every now and then. But the reason that we could talk about him being behind the veil and, and the reason why Cleopas didn't recognize him is because of the kind of body that he was raised in. Throughout history, there have been resuscitations. There have been people who have died medically and then come back to life. Now, they came back to life in their same body, in a body that was still subject to, de to death and to decay, but that wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't come back to life in order just to delay death for a few years. Jesus burst through death to the other side. I don't know if this is too irreverent, but I always think about the Kool-Aid man from those 90s commercials, just bursting through the wall, you know? It's like Jesus with, I was thinking about making a meme with the wall being like death and then Jesus like, but I, I didn't do that. You're probably grateful for that. But he just bursts through death to the other side in this, in this resurrection life where he's no longer subject to decay. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that this body that Jesus was raised in is imperishable and it's immortal. It's still a physical body and yet it is somehow a transformed physicality. That's why you see in these resurrection appearances, Jesus appearing and disappearing. Spoiler alert, that's what's gonna happen in this story. And that's why you see him seemingly unrecognizable by people who should have known who he is. He's, he's physical, he's, he, he can eat fish, people can feel him, they can touch him, but he's also passing through locked doors and doing all kinds of crazy things our bodies don't do. It's because it's a glorified resurrection body. And the New Testament is clear on this, that this same glorified, resurrected body is what awaits all who trust in Jesus. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, your forever destiny is not to float above the clouds with wings and a harp and shooting arrows at lovebirds. That's not what you're gonna be doing forever. Your forever reality, according to the scriptures, is to live in a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed creation with a new body, a resurrection body capable of dwelling in the full and manifest presence of God. Amen. Which I think is a whole lot better. That sounds a whole lot more interesting to me, a whole lot more exciting to me than floating around the clouds somewhere. But this is what the scriptures say about Jesus, that he has been raised in this kind of body and lives forever. So yeah, the disciples are, they're downcast, they're discouraged, but a ray of light is starting to break through. There's, there's, there's some seeds of hope that are getting planted and those seeds of hope come to full expression in what happens next. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly 
stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So these disciples, they they persuade this traveler to stay with them. They go and they eat a meal, and he does something that is, um, well, it, it it makes it click for them. See, way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had been teaching a large crowd and apparently none of them had brought any food. Now you might think, well, that seems unrealistic. But then you, you haven't met a single guy before. Because before I met Carolyn, this was my constant reality. Showing up at things, going, oh, I forgot food, and then going to Subway. But they didn't have Subway back then. So, so there's, there's no food. And they, they find one person who had brought like a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks breaks it, and he begins to give it out. He begins to distribute it. And then in Luke 22, which I don't, know, I don't know for sure if these two disciples were there or not, but at the Last Supper, during the meal, Jesus takes bread, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he begins to distribute it. So, so these two disciples, they've seen this before. They've seen this person do these things before, And so suddenly their eyes are opened. They realize it's Jesus. It's the one that we love. It's the one that we had thought we had lost. And just like that, he's he's gone. Off to another resurrection revelation. But here's what gets me about this. Jesus had been with them the entire time, even if they hadn't realized it. God was at work in them that whole day, even though they couldn't see it. And so when their eyes are opened at the end here, it's like a validation of everything that had happened before. It's not just that their eyes are open in that moment, it's that they see the reality of their entire day in light of this. You see see what I mean? That's why they say, weren't our hearts burning within us while we walked together? Because, because suddenly everything is validated. I think this is such a powerful story, partly, I mean, it's a real story, but partly because I think it's a microcosm of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Go back to the cross again. We talked about this, how the cross evokes this question, where is God? Why is he silent? Why isn't he doing anything? And, and then think about how the resurrection changes all of that. So just like for Cleopas and the other disciple, they're wrestling with this, where is God? What's happening here? And then their eyes are opened and suddenly they see that God had been working. Jesus had been with them all along, even though they hadn't seen it. In the same way, in the same way, the resurrection of Jesus opens the eyes and we see that actually God was at work in the cross, working towards our salvation. The resurrection of Jesus is the validation of the cross. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of everything that Jesus endured leading up to the cross. The resurrection of Jesus is God very publicly, very loudly saying, you might think that I was silent. It might have seemed like I was absent. But in reality, behind the scenes, behind the silence, I was doing something nobody could have foreseen, nobody could have expected. See, at the cross, the sins of sinful humanity were being laid on the shoulders of Jesus. At the cross, like we talked about on Friday, Jesus was bearing our shame so that we could enter the presence of the Father with confidence and assurance. At the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God, that we could be in right relationship with him. At the cross, what looked for all the world, like the silence and absence of God, was in fact, in reality, the most magnificent, world-altering, life-changing intervention of God this world has ever seen or will ever see. In John chapter 12, Jesus uses an analogy. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to start planting some seeds in our little community garden plot. It's a very small thing. It's like a two by four foot kind of box. We're hoping for a solid yield of five cherry tomatoes and two carrots. Maybe with God's grace, we'll feed thousands of people with it. You never know. Um, but when we plant those seeds, we're, we're going to bury them in the ground and, and it's going to look like nothing's happening for quite a while. The ground is going to look the same. Everything's going to be dormant. Until one day, all of a sudden, sprouts are going to emerge. And soon enough, we'll have an abundant harvest of five cherry tomatoes. That, that's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. And John 12, he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried but that's not going to be the end of the story. Instead, he is going to be raised to life and there is going to be a harvest of many, many more who through his power are going to be raised to life. First, in this life, spiritually, as our sins are forgiven and we are born again, but ultimately at the end, like Jesus, physically risen from the dead. See, this is what our God does. He brings life out of death. He shines light into the darkness. He turns deserts into gardens. He takes despairing hopelessness and he turns it into overabounding joy. He takes a generation that seems like it is lost beyond hope and he breathes new life into them. This is what our God does. And so if you feel this morning, maybe you feel like you're, you just need to give up. You feel like you're too far gone. Look at the empty tomb. You might wonder if God has gone silent, 
if he's given up on your life, look at the empty tomb. You might look at the world and you might feel like things are just falling apart. And there's, there's so much confusion, so many lies, so much deceit. Look at the empty tomb. There is always hope with our God. He's always at work. He's always moving, he's always speaking, he's always breathing new life, and one day that'll be clear. One day that will be clear. When he comes again and he makes all things new, it will be clear that he has been at work all along. He never went anywhere, he's been working for your salvation, for the renewal of the world. And so put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Don't waste another moment in despair. Don't waste another moment relying on your own strength. Believe that he died for you, that he rose again, and orient your whole life around this reality. Jesus 